0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to create diversity in thought without also creating division in community. I am your co-host, Matt Fisher, um, and I am no longer the creative director. Can no I say longer, that? You can say that. I'm <laughs> no longer yeah. the creative director here at Hill City. Not uh, because you were fired. I was fired, but I'm still doing the podcast. No, that's not true. Um, I am the care pastor here yes. at Hill City. Feels weird to say um, for so many reasons, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and I am here with my co-host, the now and maybe forever Pastor, <laughs> lead, teaching pastor, lead pastor of Hill City Church, uh, John Wagler. Wag, yes. what's going on, man?
1: Well, I'm on week feeling like 86 <laughs> of this little cough, yeah. um, but it's barely hanging on. I'm feeling better, better. Yeah.
0: The disease now known as not corona. As not That's corona. Like I don't know what I have, but I know. Yes.
1: <laughs> and my son, Max, you know. Oh, poor buddy. Broke both of his wrists in a bike accident, messed up his teeth a little bit, but he's... He's getting by as being a trooper. I'm proud of him, so he's doing a good job of fighting through. And there's nothing yeah.
0: worse than that first big, like bike rack, yeah. bone break. Like, ugh, yeah, it is that's hard. A bad, that's a bad one. Man. It's tough as a parent to watch. Yeah, because you know they'll bounce back eventually. Correct. But yeah, you're like watching is hard. It's hard yeah. for me to watch. He's not even my kid.
1: I know he was. So he was, you know. I was home. Wor- I was home working, and he went out for a bike ride. He came back, and I just heard him scream. Mm. You know, at the door, he was like, "Dad!" Mm. And I walk up, and I open the door, and he's just holding. He's got one broken wrist, the left one, but his right one, his hand was like dangling by Ooh. a string, it was like dislocated, and everything else. But you know what? He handled himself like a champ. He's a tough little dude. Tough little kid. Very tough little dude.
0: Well, yeah. we're gonna be praying for Max Waggler that he continues to heal um and today we have an answered prayer a true blessing
1: a true blessing
0: (laughs) (laughs) one of our favorite guests repeat uh repeat offender here at the at the podcast um you all saw him um speak to our community if you're part of our hill city community uh, a couple of weeks ago um and we have him back on the podcast to answer your questions from that sermon which you can find at hillcityrva.com we have david bennett back on the podcast david how are you doing across the pond buddy I'm doing well. It's so great to be back
2: with both of you. And, uh, it's been stormy weather here. We've had like seven days of like tropical storms in the middle of England. Mm. So if you can imagine, <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: my inner Australian is weirdly happy cause I like the dramatic skies. We have those in summer, but it is very strange at the moment in Oxford. I've been kind of waiting for the sun to come back, uh, mm. so I can have a proper summer
0: and get that little bit of tan before it all (laughs) leaves us. It's (laughs) it's funny because in my head, Oxford is always like cloudy. And it's like, you can't, (laughs) you can't get good thinking done when the sun's out and it's nice. You gotta. That is actually so
2: true. I mean, that is, that is why it's fantastic because you lock yourself away in the library and never feel guilty. And yeah, but I mean, That's why I go to Australia once a year (laughs) to see my parents and and my church community, I guess. Well,
1: Australia is wild right now with like the curfews and everything too. They are in extreme lockdown.
2: I mean, they're trying to retain their status as having less cases (laughs) desperately,
0: but... That's right. Nobody yeah, wants to it's... beat nobody wants to beat the US on that one. That's right. <laughs> trying to not. Exactly. Be. Thank you for filling in the blank. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like the the old camp counselor thing. You don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than yeah. the next slowest camper. <laughs> you just can't be as bad as the US <laughs> that's right. on COVID cases. That's all. Oh, we are laughing. It is horrible. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah, David, thanks so much for coming back on. We have a couple of um, of questions that folks sent in as a uh, like in response to um, your sermon um, from a few weeks ago, a month ago. It was a while ago now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know how many weeks, but yeah, yeah. several.
0: (laughs) I'll post a link um, to that specific talk in our show notes um, that you can reference on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. But um, David, would you mind giving us like a quick overview for those who didn't hear it of, you know, what your kind of talk was on? And then that'll contextualize these questions for folks.
2: Yeah, so I talked about kind of biblical theology of faithfulness. And the word in Hebrew is aman and how in Hebrew etymology, like the, the meaning of the word aman actually means the quality of a tent peg mm. in the ground that's steadfast. So I talked about how it wasn't actually like Abraham's faithfulness or our faithfulness in Christ or our faith in Christ that really does the work. It's ultimately God's faithfulness in the person of Jesus and that he was the true 10 peg. And it says that in Zechariah, and it talks about passage in Isaiah 22, where it says, I will drive him like a 10 peg into a firm place. So there's an amazing kind of biblical theology of like, our faith is based on God's faithfulness and then like how that forms our identities, my background as, you know, coming from a, you know, atheist, uh, gay activist anti-Christian kind of background and then becoming a Christian and how that, that whole understanding has changed the way that I understand my own personal identity and yeah. And how that, you know, what happens to our identity in discipleship. So yeah, it was such a pleasure and such a fun kind of revelatory message that God gave me that was really special about you know three or four years ago when I was living in Oxford.
1: Yeah. yeah. Awesome, awesome message. And before we get into uh, some of the questions that you all had for David um, when he was here with us, and again, thank you so much for sending those questions in as well. We'd love to always go back and forth on on some of those things. So um, but what you're going to hear David share here um, is his perspective on your questions. And um, some of these, some of the answers you'll hear are things that we are still wrestling with as a church and figuring out as well. And um, I just wanted to say, you know, David's not necessarily speaking for Hill City um, on some of these things. We are still like having conversations around all this stuff, Um, but David is helpful in this conversation and helping us think through a lot of things as well so you know what we're going to do today is just kind of go through a few of the questions i don't know if we'll get to all of them or not but we're just you know wherever the conversation leads us but um based off of your sermon you know you talked about the eunuch um and um there was one question that that was sent in and said can you elaborate more on the idea of relating to the eunuch and how do you see that as a fulfilling option um over instead of like being married and being able to have sex
2: yeah it 's really good i so I think what I love about the eunuch is it's such a weird category today, like who thinks about eunuchs like mm. you know, and I love the weird bits of the Bible i mean they're my favorite there 's always like these deep truths like wedged there that we don't see, and you know, I remember reading isaiah fifty six many times. I just casually skimming over it, not realizing that it was like a life changing chapter for me personally, because it referred to a sexual minority in the ancient world and what God said to that sexual minority. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it has so much to say about, um, first of all, sexual minorities, but second of all, like, I'm going to use some big words here, like what our future eschatological state will look like like what we will actually be like as Christians in the future and how, what it means to be a new creation. So I think God uses this paradoxical concept of like a eunuch who is basically barren, childless, has nothing going for them in the ancient world. Can't really become the King, can't like have a huge family or progeny. Yeah. It's kind of a dead end in the ancient world. Uh, and probably even in our society as well, in the way that we think about sexuality and being fruitful or fecund as a person. And so I think what God does is he says, I'm going to bring my fecundity, my blessing, my fruitfulness through the eunuch first. I'm going to give them a name better than having sons and daughters. And so what that does to your understanding of sexuality is it flips it on its head. Suddenly your lack or your poverty becomes your greatest asset in the kingdom. And so that's why I think, like, for me, it's quite profound in thinking about being a celibate gay Christian, because suddenly I can actually think of it that way. I'm actually receiving a name that's better than having sons and daughters. And I think that does relate directly to being celibate gay Christian and the future promise God has. And also the current promise, like God says, I'm going to give you, you know, if you give up father, mother, sister, brother, And the other thing it does is, I'll give you, you know, a hundredfold that now and in the future with persecutions. And so I think there's just this exchange that happens, like in our lack, God fills it up with even more glory. And I think that's a profound part of what it means to worship God and be a Christian is that you have this upside down view of human flourishing, you know, no one would look at a cross in the ancient world and think, wow, this is a way to overcome the world. (laughs) (laughs) yeah <laughs> um, but that is what God is saying that through taking up your cross, loving him, giving him your whole life, including your sexuality, like you will overcome the world and you will bring in resurrection life and you will be partaker of that individually and then corporately in other people's lives, you'll have spiritual children and I think that's that's how I understand it, and I think that's why there's such a huge Christian history of celibacy and why. So many people in the church have both found themselves in that place, chosen that directly, as Jesus says, um, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I think the other thing is that our life in this body is only like 70 years. Like, I think if you have a non-eternal perspective, then you can't really understand the logic of the eunuch in the scriptures. Because like, the reality is you're just going to die and there's nothing more. But I think if you become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, it's a profound act of trust, of driving your tent peg, if you like, into God's faithfulness and saying, I'm actually going to trust him, even though it's hard. Um, Yeah, but I think we have a lot of reimagining to do to really get into that and live it out in the church, to really take that scripture seriously. I think even sometimes I just skim across and go, well, I have this amazing name. Um, so I have hope, and it's all fine, and it's all easy, and there's no, you know, there's no suffering. I can just kind of skip, skip along to the good bit. But there is, there is suffering, and there is difficulty with it. And I think that's okay, you know, yeah. um, when you know that that God is going to, to to meet you and provide for you and be your all in all. So yeah, I think it pushes you into being a bit more radical about what it means to be a Christian and it's actually a vital part of rediscovering that today. So yeah, I'm all for the unix <laughs> and thinking about unix.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you since this is something you put a lot of thought into and there's been, you know, gallons of ink spilled on this particular word and uh how it's how it's interpreted. Um do, do you ascribe any special meaning to uh, or um do you ascribe any special value to the idea that late, you know, later in the passage, they delineate between um, some were born eunuchs, some chose to be eunuchs, and some were made eunuchs, like that? Um, it goes yes. on to sort of specify different subsections so, of that sexual minority.
2: I think the way that I would understand it is, I probably want to understand that passage contextually within the whole Judah Isaiah, like the second half of Isaiah and you know, this is really where Isaiah starts talking about the future and the hope and the promises. And it's like, what will God do to vindicate injustice? Mm. Um, so it's interesting that there you have the eunuch and that there does seem to need to be some kind of justice given to these eunuchs, uh, which I think is an amazing revelatory thing for who God is towards those who have a different embodiment. So I think there is, you know, Megan DeFrance has written a book on intersex and she talks about eunuchs related to that some people have talked to about eunuchs related to being transgender um so i think there is like a whole conversation that's that needs to happen around how being intersex transgender gay you know relates to that i mean i have single women friends who often are really encouraged as well by that passage so i think god has kind of designed it to be something that we can build theology on as a modern day church, she's left that kind of trace there for us. Um, And I think the first one is obviously about things that you, you know, in some sense, I think being a celibate Christian relates to being not born a eunuch, but there is some sense in which you don't choose it. And then there's also some sense in which you choose it. Uh, And I think that's maybe the unique thing about being a celibate gay Christian is that there's like a bit in each. Mm. There's there's delineations that Jesus makes in Matthew. Like you're not born gay, but you develop as an unchosen kind of orientation as gay. Um, And then the other side is you choose what to do with that orientation. And that is, you know, for the sake of the kingdom, you choose to be celibate. As a default in a kind of special way. And so for me, I think those two things come together um, to mean that the eunuch does specially also relate to being a celibate gay Christian. But I think Jesus ultimately is also referring to himself because he extends the, the metaphor to choosing to be eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. And then if you go back to the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, and then the Septuagint as well. In Isaiah 53, where it talks about the cross and it's like a great prophecy about the suffering servant. It says in one part of that, "Who has heard of his generation?" And actually, in the Hebrew, it's like, "Who has heard of his like progeny? Like, where is his family?" Hmm. And so, in some sense, the actual atonement, like Jesus dying on the cross, happened, and and how he brought us the forgiveness of sins comes from his choosing to be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. So I think he's actually referring to himself because he's innovating this new thing and they're all aware that he doesn't have a wife at the age of 30 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he's going to go and die on a cross. So he's going to become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom on the cross. So I actually think it's related also principally to his identity as the Messiah who will die on the cross and become a eunuch. And then when we're baptized into him, we conform to that. If we don't get married, um, that becomes the way that we live out our sexuality as Christians. That's
1: good. You know, it's interesting. Like you, you know, you talk about the flourishing aspect and um, I find this part of the conversation interesting because a lot of times it is the, in, in terms of culturally sexual majority, which would be heterosexuals, telling sexual minorities about flourishing, you know, and that you can do this and through Christ, you can do this, and everything. But one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is this Walter Brueggemann quote where he says um, that the world has stripped us of our or has a monopoly in our imagination. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that because what I have been seeing is a lot of times those that are heterosexual are making these demands or commands on the sexual minorities but they're not even embracing what it means to flourish. And so when you as a Christian straight person don't even embrace that for yourself, but then put it on a sexual minority, like it's, I feel like it's double the weight, like, you know, it's like it, it cause like it's not real in the majority. And so why would the minority think it's possible? It, it reminds me of even, you know, I'm actually preaching on this this weekend about the household codes in Clashes when Paul is beginning to talk about this, he's 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 doing this, he's essentially in the household codes, he's like flipping everything and saying, like, hey, you are the people that are in power. Well, this is what you do now. You know, and he's flipping this whole narrative. And I think one of the things that's really missing in the Christian culture from a heterosexual standpoint is hey, you're saying that someone can be gay and celibate and flourish. But you don't even live that way, think that way, act that way yourself. So why in the world do you expect that out of somebody else? And I think when someone's in the majority speaking to them, it's like we could talk about this with race and different things, too. But like when when the majority is doing something, I I just believe like from a straight standpoint, we are putting more weight on the shoulders of sexual minorities by not embracing human flourishing like we should.
2: I think, that, I think that's a brilliant point. For me, the it's a bit like with feminism, everything became about women and like moralizing women. And I feel like it's a bit like with this, you know, everything becomes about moralizing gay people. And I do think that's a massive issue. However, for me, Jesus is more important. Sure. My life, my relationship with him, how I will be held accountable to him, Like, I know he's going to have incredible grace for all of us. I know that, like, none of us get everything right. But if we really know him, like, our desire will be to worship him with our whole lives. And so I know there's all these issues with heterosexuals. I'm so over it. Like, (laughs) there's a reason that I do a whole bunch of podcasts. It's probably to help mainly heterosexuals. Yes, and gay people. (laughs) But, like, it's, like, it's, like... I think there's a humility, though, that like, even though you have those weights and pressures on you and so many heterosexuals don't see it. And I, I mean, it's, it's I used to get so frustrated and I used to like want to throw in the towel and just like run off and I'm done with all of this. The only thing that really keeps me there is that I first of all, I, Jesus and how he is with me. And second of all, um, is the, like there are many amazing people who are heterosexual who get it and are living that life and they're the ones often also suffering and not being brought into the center of the church and being put on the fringe because most heterosexual pastors just want to have a heterosexual party with friends that make them feel nice and comfortable and have a good salary and you know live up life and they'll get to the heavenly gates and they'll be probably lost and most of their life will be burnt up with fire and not matter eternally so like it's up to you (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, I I just don't think we have the option. And I'm not saying that the white picket fence life can't be compatible with the kingdom like it can be. But if it's this kind of thing that bars you from these deeper sacrifices and this deeper life with Christ, then it becomes a stumbling block. You know, I think it's just better (laughs) to be single. It's not because he doesn't think that marriage is good in some way. It's just that it can provide such a stumbling block to living as Christ lived in this kind of radical way with discipleship. And it's hard. I mean, my heart goes out to married people and kill kids. It's like, it's hard and to live the kingdom and do that. Um, but I think my point is there should be more onus on the heterosexual people and this message, but the reason I stick to it and I don't move away from it um, is because of Jesus and because I know what we're headed for in the kingdom. So I want I want to remain in that. But it, it is incredibly hard. I mean, I feel often pressed at every side. Um, the liberals hate me, the conservatives hate me. Um, <laughs> you know, you just can't win. I'm in this kind of really stick it as it is mood in the last like three or four months. I'm just like, I'm sick of like having to make like so much of a plea for this deep life of discipleship that is just all over the pages of the new Testament. It's like, I want to live it out. And if other people do too, come with me. Yeah. But if you want to stick in, this like sexual politics and, you know, play culture war, like you can do that. I'm not interested.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, and I know that sounds a bit angsty, but like, I think it, I'm trying to like share that angst. Cause I think that is a holy thing. It's like, that's it's a, a good, good thing.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. a good angst.
0: Um, so I, I want to know more about something you said. How many more questions do we have?
1: We have a few, but I mean, we can do whatever we want.
0: Okay. Well, <laughs> I have, so
1: <laughs> we're not going to keep
0: you all day. Cause I also have a heart out at some point, David. Um, great. <laughs> so when you talked about really quickly, you mentioned like, um, you know, some of the problematic nature of moralizing groups, um, uh, based on movements. So like. The feminist movement moralizes, you know, like, moralized women. The, the gay rights movement moralized gay, gay LGBTQ folks. Um, my understand, so maybe this is more—less you as a the- the- theologian and more you as a former activist. Um, I think the reason that happens, from my understanding, is, like, when an oppressed minority— when their value is removed by their oppressors, one of the ways that they feel like, as a movement, they can restore value— is by moralizing, we see it in blackness too, like um, with, with racial oppression. Um, so you one of the options is to sort of moralize and bolster the thing about you that has caused the majority to oppress you. Does that make sense? What do you think, so if not moralizing um, that thing, what in your experience has been a way to gain equality in a system that oppresses that person for that reason. Does that make sense?
2: Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. I think Jesus struggled with this deeply. Um, I think he went through it so profoundly. And I think that's where I would direct people, whatever they're, wherever they feel oppressed. Like I think he, he was, you know, a man acquainted with affliction and sorrow and he understood what it was like to be completely unknown. Um, And I think what happens in the cross is that Jesus turns the act of unknowing a person because of some feature of their humanity, you know, for him, it was his identity as the son of God and God incarnate, but whatever it might be. And like, they unknew him, they just marred him and killed him on the cross and murdered him basically. And so I think that is part of, the miracle of being a Christian is taking that injustice, taking that oppression that's being thrown on you. That is incredibly painful. It is so sinful. There's just no excuse for it. And somehow in the love of God, being able to look back at that person with utter love and forgive them and say, they don't know what they're doing. And that, I feel like is a complete revolution. And that stops the cycle of vengeance, which we can be tempted to join in with, which actually doesn't get bring us to restoration and restorative justice. And I do think there are injustices that won't happen this side of the new world, where there are just some things that are so atrocious, like maybe the Holy Spirit can miraculously undo that and there can be restorative justice, but sometimes there can't, and I think there will be, that's why a day of judgment is so important and why Jesus preached about it so much is because that will be the day when when the real justice will come. Um, and there'll be in-breaking moments of that now, but it will, will never fully get that until the day God finally removes sin and death from the creation. So for me, that's kind of how I see it, um, yeah. I think a deep theology of the cross is so important Um, and what Jesus went through in his life too, in terms of being rejected uh, and being oppressed that somehow and amazingly through the spirit and in the father's love, those things are actually transformed into sites of intimacy with God. And I think that for me is just the only answer I really have that ever really satisfies me I think the injustice and oppression when it happens to you is just such a horrible thing. And my heart goes out to anyone who's experienced that. Um, but I do know a God who has gone through it himself and the most profound way. I mean, I just, I imagine like what it was like for Jesus to have gone through that rejection. I mean, I understand it on some level because I've gone through a lot of rejection with being a gay man that wants to follow Jesus. <laughs> um, that's like three times the Oppression. <laughs> um, people will get out there just for saying, "I want to go have a nice, happy gay marriage with a poodle in Paris and earn a nice income, or whatever." Like the the utopia is. Like today, you're actually, in many ways, you're going to be set up better than if you decide to follow Jesus. Um, it's going to be easier for you because society has changed, um, and I think that you know, in a way, I'm happy about that. But in a way, I'm still unsatisfied, like, there's this deeper way of Jesus, and I've, I've been called to it, and I've been changed, and I think it is more satisfying than that horizon, both in heterosexual and gay form. So for me, it, yeah, it just keeps coming back to that for me, <laughs> like, this is, you know, I've been called to follow Christ, and my oppression, how I've experienced oppression will be transformed through, through carrying my cross. Um, and it will be made into a light yoke um, and an easy burden. And I think sometimes God gives us the opportunity to redress injustice and to see systems transformed, and that's amazing. And we should try our best to transform those systems, you know, with with the gospel and with faith. And with our secular brothers and sisters who don't, you know, who are also human and trying to work out the deep mystery of life, like we cooperate with them too in, in, in removing those injustices. I think that's a really important thing, but maybe we can talk about that uh, on another podcast. Cause I'm really interested, especially in Augustine's theology of like city of earth and city of God and how they come together and where the city of God can cooperate with the city of earth. And then where the city of earth is, you know, distinguished from the city of God. And there's going to be conflict too.
0: So that's just another really thorny <laughs> difficult theological <laughs> question. Yeah, that would uh, there, I, that, that would, would be a person. fun one. That would be especially poignant right now I feel like yeah. because there's a yeah. where we are at the current moment in our country and as a church tr- really trying to navigate how do we cooperate with our um friends and neighbors who don't have faith but do seek justice. Yeah. Um without, you know, yeah, without uh, diminishing the city of God, but also without um, delegitim- delegitimizing the good work that the city of man is trying to do, some of the city of man is trying to do. Yeah,
1: that's a that would be a great yeah. conversation because it is a tense, there's a lot of tension there because it, it feels like you step too far one way or the other and you're you're all of a sudden on shaky ground, right? Like you, you step too far, let's just say towards secular justice, for lack of a better term, secular justice. And all of a sudden you're like, well, where's Jesus and all this? And what are you partnering up with? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you step too far back and don't enter in, you're like, well, no, god's people get involved right then it becomes like, and like you're yeah. absent then it becomes
0: know? the the brush off of like it's a hard issue yeah like well yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's also a voting issue <laughs> it's like
1: when people are like well it's sin i'm like well of course it's sin but like <laughs> we don't just yeah. like sit back and do nothing about it you yeah. know so um, yes
2: i mean i think that that's something for me that i think we all make mistakes with as christians and we don't always get right yeah, but i think it's sure. better to do something than nothing and God will work it out with us. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very true. Well, a couple quick, like practical things, uh, questions that people sent in one was so theologically, obviously, you know, churches, some churches will, will be on the um, affirming side, which would say, you know, same sex marriage is, okay biblically and you know you can do anything within church leadership uh, if you are gay and married um, or gay and sexually active Um, you have uh, other churches with theologically would say you know um, if you're gay and celibate you can do anything in the church Um, if you're gay and sexually active that there are you know essentially you butt up against the line of certain things that you can do but for someone who might disagree theologically, um, how can they flourish in a church that they might disagree theologically in, but they love everything else about the church? Like they might say like, man, I'm all in on 99%, but like this one piece is a really big deal because I would love to lead that. But because of rules you guys might have in place, like how can that person or that couple flourish in a scenario like that?
2: Recently, I've been really thinking about like how theology of leadership and I think one of the problems we have in the church is we think, oh gosh, I just really want to lead. And I'm really only a legitimate disciple until like the pastor says, would you please like get on this leadership t- team? Cause you're awesome. And we're kind of looking for this validation from the church that like, I truly belong. Mm. And so when I'm finally asked to preach that Sunday sermon, or I'm finally asked to, you know, I don't know, be on the head of the welcome team, or I'm finally asked to be on the production whatever it might be, some leader, that that is this like ultimate validation and that like now I'm, you know, and the reality is for me, you know, I, I got to the place where church would look at me as a leader. And I realized this is not about that. My Lord, if that's the place I'm coming from to want to be a leader, I haven't understood something very profoundly crucial to what it means to be a leader. I mean, Before God, you have a much greater responsibility when you're a leader and it's, it can be crushing, you know, like you want to make sure that you've sorted things out with the Lord in your life and brought these things as deeply as you can to him first, before you say, ah, like, I want to be in the leadership of the church. Uh, like here in, in England, I'm actually thinking of getting ordained and becoming a church of England priest. And I'm doing that very slowly because i recognize that what that means in terms of how i will be judged and how i'll be held accountable in the future is very high and so you can think how unloving of the church for to not let me be a leader but if it is true and if what scripture does say holds together with sexuality and your church lets you do that they're putting you into a situation which isn't i think ultimately loving for you or for me, because, it, you know, then I'm dealing with that on a whole new level um, and I, I'm not spiritually prepared for it. So I think we need to have a much slower leadership culture and understand that really being a leader is about self-death and serving others. It's not about, you know, the big celebration. And I think the more that I've craved huma- human beings' validation, the more I realize I'm out of t- whack with the fear of the Lord and where I get validation from him first. And then of course I understand that ultimately it's like, well, if I'm in this partnership with my same sex partner, like I'm never going to be able to be in that leadership position, even if I have all of that worked out and I'm still convinced this is the way. And I think that's just a really difficult thing that fortunately we as gay people have to go through. I think for me, it's the same thing when I'm at a church and I hear they become affirming, I go through a kind of grief. Um, That's very profound. And sometimes for two or three days, I'm just totally torn apart. I feel rejected. I feel not understood. Um, I feel put to the side and I can't help but feel that. And so I understand that and I understand how personally hard it is. But I think that's where, you know, there has to be a line in the sand for the church To have its conscience on these questions and if it doesn't then you know it can't be what it is um and you know it's just a difficult thing i think ultimately my prayer is always for people to just keep going deeper with jesus and then when he says i want you to lead then he opens the door rather than i'm craving 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 to have this leadership space um and the pastor won't give it to me you know i think just seek him and let him put you in leadership don't try to get into leadership and rush into that space Um, and that goes for people beyond people in gay marriages but like or partnerships it goes for everyone but I ultimately think and believe that if you go deeper with him he's going to start to speak to you about your gay relationship and that he will lead you into a different space and that's my conviction that's really the only way I can answer that question I can't give some kind of magical formulaic answer that will give everyone what they want to hear. But I hope people respect the honesty of that answer.
1: Well, I agree, like in terms of even how we think about leadership just in general in the church, I think we do need to look at that a little bit differently. And um and, and some of it's like Western culture too, right? Like if you're not leading something, you're not successful. If you're not you know, so that I think plays into church, uh, the kind of winner winning is everything. And listen, I love to win. I'm a competitive junkie. But like but like there is like an element to that when it's brought into the church actually leads you towards an anti-Jesus mindset of serving, <laughs> serving people. Right. Cause you're always wanting to win and lead and all that other stuff. And I think that does play into the, like how we think about leadership and to your point too, about the weight of leading in a church, that is something that, um, man, I, I wish, I wish no, I don't wish this. I don't wish everyone could feel it like there's there is a there's a part of it that um, it's crazy how many nights I've been just awakened, you know, mid morning or not being able to sleep or whatever. Just because of the weight you feel for the community of people, God's placed in your care and there is so much weight that goes to leading something. And it's not just about I want to be able to do this or do this role there. There is a extreme weight that is placed upon you that as we know, we're held accountable to as well. And so, um, that is something, (laughs) I I think the
2: flip side of it is that participation is different to leadership. I think that anyone should be able to fully participate. Yeah. And the, the church has to work out the difference between participation, because we will never work out our whole lives with these questions straight away. And part of the working out is being allowed to participate. And so I think in legalistic churches that haven't allowed you know gay people who are partnered to be part of the part- whatever participatory things and activities, mm-hmm. I think we need to be really careful. Some things aren't leadership roles; they're just part of participating in what it is to be a Christian. And we're all on our journey, and we're all being transformed as a process. We're not; we haven't got it all together. But I do think there's this kind of line that Scripture has for like people in a more like. <laughs> you know, the the kind of pastor head kind of ecclesiological roles that is that is really way more intense. Yeah. And the, you know, the whole reputation of the gospel and everything. It's not just like church is a club, you know, it has a spiritual reality attached to it that is that is really important to get right for the person in leadership, not just <laughs> sure. for the church. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. So
2: And and I think the other thing is that leadership relates to the created order somehow. And Paul struggled with this in his epistles and letters, like how does the created order work with, you know, um, with with, with leadership and different churches kind of rule differently on that. And I'm obviously convinced that sexuality has to do essentially with the created order, whereas, you know, gender and women and leadership has to do with the mediation of culture around the created order. Rather than directly the created order, and that's why I would draw a distinction between those two questions. Yeah. Um. And lean towards a more kind of egalitarian position myself.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um. One of the other questions here are there are two I think that it. One will lead us down another path, so I'll stick. So for parents, um, what's some like? What's your couple of things you want parents to focus on when it comes to conversations with their kids, if they say to them, you know, that they think they're gay or maybe they feel, maybe they're having some kind of questions about gender or, you know, um, what's some advice you would give to parents?
2: Yeah. I think the advice I give to parents is like, facilitate where you can your child's patience with themselves. I think that we live in a society that has no patience for the self that wants to work the self out in in, an instant. Um, And there's something to be said about being patient with yourself and to not try to work out every single part of your identity by the age of 13 (laughs) or even 17 or even You know, even when I was 19, you know, and I had this revelation from God, like it took me forever, you know, when it it became a Christian. Help your child take the pressure off themselves. And I think part of that is unconditional acceptance. Part of that is, you know, whatever happens, you are loved, you are welcome. uh, You are a part of this family. And there may be ways in which we will disagree, but that is always going to be true. Um, Whatever way you choose to live your life, and I think that's something that the LGBTQI community hasn't been able to give to all LGBTQI people, which has been really sad like and the Christian community often hasn't provided either mm-hmm. So like you know, whether it's people who've detransitioned, whether it's people who are celibate gay Christians like myself, or just intersex people who see still see themselves as male or female and don't you know think that they are not but that there's just a kind of ambiguity about the genitalia. You know, there's just so many people. We don't all fit easily in these discourses that want to main, like just streamline everything so simplistically. And I think as a parent, it's important to live in the gray and to enter the gray with your child and show them like various perspectives, even though you might have your own and to like grow with them. And I go back to like the incarnation with Jesus. Like it's hard to be a human being after the fall. <laughs> it's not easy. In fact, there's so much that is wrong that isn't our fault as humans that we go through. And the incarnation wasn't just about Jesus coming to pay for our sin and do away with our problems and the things we've done wrong and that we're culpable for. It's also God coming to meet us, where he needs to be just to us and he needs to show us his plan and how he was always destined, you know, to love us and save us and pull us out of, you know, (laughs) the fallen place we're in. And so I think part of it is almost becoming like a baby with your, with your child, like become, learn their language, learn their experience because there's things they know that you don't know. And you need to be able to enter into their world with them and learn their language alongside them whilst also being <laughs> the person that knows more than them in most areas and, and can faithfully steward them and help them and guide them and what they're going through. So you have to have those two sides you know, of going low, being learning a new language, learning what it's like if your child has gender dysphoria, if your child's gay, whatever it might be that they're going through, you need to really come down and learn about that rather than, you know, stand above them. I know more about this than you. Um, but then I really, you know, it's really valuable when your parents like, well, I've been in romantic relationships and I've had issues and actually this is going to help you if you do it this way rather than, you know, so I think you need both of those roles happening as a parent and creating a space of unconditional love and creating a space of challenge for your child as well. And facilitating, education for them to make the best possible choice for their situation. The other thing is you can't force your child to follow Jesus, that has to be their decision and you have to give them the freedom to choose not to as well. Um, And that will actually mean they feel free and are more likely (laughs) to follow him later. So I think there's, there's all of that going on. It's really hard to be a parent and I think my heart goes out and my prayers go out to every parent. But I think those two things is how I would approach it, I think, um, in, in areas where I just I don't understand if I'm a heterosexual parent and I have an LGBTQI, um, a plus uh, child. So, yeah, I hope that helps. There's always so much more to say. I always feel like you could have... A three-hour forum for every one of these
1: questions <laughs> sure
2: but we don't have that much time <laughs> <laughs>
1: um one of the other questions that came in was uh do you or how do you see a difference between talking about say same-sex attraction and having a conversation about gender dysphoria
2: yeah i think ultimately because i'm not transgender i'm always careful not to assume i understand yeah and so whatever I say, it needs to be, there's other people that are transgender and are Christians and have written, there's a lot of great books by Mark Yarhouse about transgender identities um, or understanding gender dysphoria is another book. I think his work's really good. Um, so it's important to understand that people with gender dysphoria interpret gender dysphoria differently and come up with different conclusions about how it should be lived out, that what they feel is ultimately um what worked for them. So I think diversifying how we understand gender dysphoria is imp- important. I it was a really fascinating YouTube video put up by Jubilee where they, you know, they interviewed, um, it was eight tra- transgender people from different kind of generational lines from older to younger. They asked them questions like, do you think that, um, sex reassignment surgery is essential to being transgender? And the older person kind of went close to strongly agree and the younger people went close to strongly disagree so it's really fascinating that already in the experience of gender dysphoria you have such a various varying interpretation of what it looks like or what it requires to be transgender um that really there are transgender identities but i think ultimately for me the difference is that there's a discontinuity sorry that between being gay and being transgender, there's a discontinuity and a continuity. The continuity I would say would be going through what the experience of being with people who don't have to have the stress of a different embodiment and knowing what that's like between each other, Uh, like feeling that together. And there's a solidarity in that between gay and transgender people. But I think the experience of gender dysphoria itself is very different in the sense that it has, it leads you down a different path. And it, it phenomenologically, in terms of how it's experienced is quite different. It spikes sometimes, and this can be really, really hard some days, and then can become easier in other times of your life. And you can't predict it, which I think makes it very difficult for gender dysphoric people. It doesn't necessarily mean that it goes away, <laughs> but it seems to have some kind of variation of effect that gender dysphoric people have to manage with themselves and with God. And then with being gay, it seems to just be like a flat line thing where it doesn't really change. And you know, you just have the shift of your normal desires. So I think my heart goes out to gender dysphoric people because they have to experience that kind of shift constantly, um, of just craving to be in a body that fits with their psychology. And I can't really imagine what that's like, but I certainly want to learn more about that and, and walk alongside my transgender brothers and sisters that are, you know, going through that. Um, and I think we need to have a lot of grace for that because it's a different experience to, the, to you know, it, it comes into the whole idea of like trans men, trans women, marriage, like there's all of those questions and maybe we could do a podcast (laughs) at another time (laughs) with someone who's transgender and Christian. Um, You know, I think that would be really interesting and I'd love to learn more uh, there, but I don't want to go to those questions because they, I think would require a really good no, no.
1: That's good. That's good. Um, One of the last ones here was, well, there's two other ones, but what do you see just in this conversation around sexuality and faith um, that brings you a lot of hope and then what's something that maybe gives you some concern
2: so what gives me hope is that there have been some signs of people on the more progressive side of things who are wanting to have a better conversation um, and to find some points of solidarity and commonality and not persecute each other which i think is really great um, and to really respect that whilst Side, you know, side B people like me, or people who take a more orthodox position about their personal sexuality, like while that's hard for them, and there's that grief that they feel, as I do the other way, like we can, it's not just grief we need to feel, and we need to not take our grief out on each other. Um, so I think there are signs of that, and there's acceptance of side B people in some areas of progressive Christian understanding I think what gives me concern is secular society more, um, in the sense that there just isn't even an understanding of even being gay and Christian or transgender and Christian or whatever intersex and Christian. There's just like a totally secular understanding. So I think we have a lot of translation work to do as Christian. We're trying to convince ourselves at the moment, <laughs> um, and I'm kind of getting sick of that. Like I'm like. let's trust God, you know, like with, with what we know he's revealed to us, but learn to translate that well to people who don't share our convictions. Um, And I think that's something I'm more concerned about is raising awareness in the secular world and trying to build trust with the secular world where the church historically has lost that trust. Um, And I think that's something that might take me a while to get to because I think first, the church needs to work itself out a bit more. I mean, it's just like really hard to hear the Pope say, if you're gay, don't become a priest. And I know that he probably meant like, if you're wanting to be active in your sexual expression or, you know, whatever, but like having a partner and being married, well, of course that wouldn't work with Catholic church. But I found on another level, it's just really hard. Like, this is something you didn't choose and you're saying... To someone don't sure. be a priest um that was just so bizarre and then they have like james martin running their pr who is like not even clear about his position and you know and then i'm there as a side b christian saying how can i relate to him and it just seems like a mess to me in terms of how the church is working it out i think the church of england's trying its best but it's it's just tough at the moment i'm looking forward to i think a lot of what <laughs> ironically the gay christians are doing whether it's a side b or a side a is a lot better than what the institutional church is doing yeah um at the moment
1: yeah the last question that they had that, that was turned in and i don't know matt if you have any others that you want to throw out there no. um was not that wouldn't lead to another hour of talking So (laughs) Um, we need
0: to have some post-punk dancing (laughs) i I was just thinking when you were talking about like you know if we talk about transgender issues we should have a transgender person on i was like well when we you can be the co-host on that when we move you to richmond that's right uh, yeah you can be here that's right we can phone in uh transgender christians for you to talk to
1: yeah even when you were earlier saying that like you get hate from both sides and i was like well we love you and so you can come here to richmond and although there's no one's
0: dancing here because we're still there i don't know if they'll ever be dancing again it'll just be me and you just be me and you with our with our favorite joy division record Let's dancing just, in a room I, mean, I, I will be there i will find a way i mean
1: they <laughs> It'll Man. only be hologram dancing from yeah. here on out will be.
0: Just me and David listening to New Order over Skype dancing. Yes, New Order. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um one of the last questions that was turned in just said, Why do you feel it's important to reference being a gay Christian? Don't we want to um identify solely as being Christian or at maximum a Christian who is gay? So they the I'm I'm don't know the person that actually turned this question in, but my guess is they're coming from the standpoint of saying, "Well, David, you talk about your faith being in Jesus all the time and centered on Jesus, then why do you start off by saying, I'm gay and christian? why Why isn't it either at reversed meaning I'm a Christian who has same sex attraction?" or not even say that at all because our identity should just simply be in Christ.
2: So I actually had Tim Keller here uh, in Oxford uh, and I was name, like, I want to ask right him. I said, let me pick up <laughs> that oh. name for you. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> hurt, you, hurt your big um, toe <laughs> dropping that. Uh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like, I want to ask him an annoyingly difficult question because he's Tim Keller. So yeah. he you know why not um and also like i think he has a pastoral mind too so i was interested in seeing because i think that question comes basically with two errors in it one is a theological problem and the second is a pastoral problem Mm. and so i'll come to the tim keller story in a sec but i think the first thing i'd say is that being gay or same sex attracted or whatever way you want to represent it um for me i think the only way you can understand it truly as it as as squaring with reality theologically because i am same sex attracted and gay and i'm not into pretending i just don't want to do that sure um ever <laughs> i think people try to do that with this and it's just caused a lot of pain but for me there's a complex inter entanglement i think i've talked about this before between creation the full and and the future like yeah. in the gospel in, in terms of how we understand being gay and the difference between say being an alcoholic and being gay is that first of all being gay like isn't a chosen vice that you develop. Um, it's a different kind of state where you originally created good desire for intimacy, sex, all these amazing goods that God created in the beginning, not as good as God himself and eternal goods, but still these amazing goods that we're made to desire. These goods are still like the orientation towards wanting those things is ultimately a good thing um like that's the beginning creation but then it fell and so it's a complex entanglement of those two things being gay it's not like being an alcoholic or you know being addicted to lust or whatever the problem might be this is about your created goodness as a human being as a person and your fullness together um so i always say you know i mean people say but isn't being gay sinful and I would say well being gay is being part of being wait one way that you end up being human like you're created good you fell you know you're being redeemed and so it's it you have to understand it in that frame first above and beyond um you know this kind of flat line view which is just It's bad. Therefore, delete it. And it's not part of your identity. So I'd say we need a much better theology of identity. Our sexuality is part of what Jesus in his lordship um, reigns over. And so he he doesn't want to delete that. So I'll I'll come to the pastoral issue. Pastoral issue is that gay people go through stuff that's not and they need to they need to be able to say I'm gay. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, they'll never be able to deal with it. Yeah. So it's actually like binding them into a place of silence so that you don't have to deal with it. And that's kind of your issue that you need to like put to the side and kind of get over it and challenge maybe some internal homophobia. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say people who are wrestling with kind of homophobia often will come up with that because they don't want to. I mean, there's also the other side of it is they don't want someone to make an idol of their sexual identity. And I think that's really important you know, as well, but often I feel like that comes up when you saying, you know, I've given my sexuality to God and I'm a celibate gay Christian and they still have an issue. I sometimes think that has more to do with it. They just don't want to face the challenge to their faith as well, that it would mean if this was really true, Yeah, but there is a way out of that to believe in Jesus. And I'm hoping that like my work will help with that. The second side part of it. Yeah, it was the pastoral that we've talked about. And then Tim Keller. So I said to him, Tim, I would love to know, Christians keep saying to the LGBTQI community, um, that's not your identity, Christ is. What's your opinion on that? And he said they should stop saying that. Hmm. They should say, when you become a Christian, LGBTQI, is demoted under the lordship of jesus and takes on a new meaning and i thought that was a brilliant answer and i want to give all credit to tim keller for that because i think i think that's a brilliant answer and every part of our lives has to go through that so god doesn't just delete our created goodness our fullness that whole struggle that whole reality of our personhood he wants to come into it and become the lord of it and the savior of it um and use it for his glory so i don't have a problem is calling myself
0: a celebrity gay Christian,
1: I wonder if Tim Keller will make it and as a pastor. yeah, I think he's I he's think I'll do okay, there, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: he's gonna sell some books one day. That one, yeah. it's
2: gonna... <laughs> I think the thing is, you know, when you become an academic theologian, you often feel like, oh, I can never talk about more popular level people who inform theological discourse, but I think that's wrong, I think the church catholic small c <laughs> um you know there's gold everywhere you look yeah um because jesus is there and that's his bride and so there's also lots of not gold but we've talked about <laughs> enough of that yeah. so
1: let's <laughs> be optimistic yeah cool <laughs> fill our hearts with joy
2: oh, Yeah. yeah <laughs> hallelujah amen pentecostal let's go <laughs> kind of let's shy. realize some eschatology <laughs> let's get it coming no. that's right
0: that's right Surrounded by charismatic. You're like not you're just like <laughs> off in a corner now. <laughs> I grew up Methodist guys. Uh, yes. You guys are basically just like wizards to me. <laughs> I don't even understand it. Uh, you know, dancing around. Wizards. Uh, <laughs> handling snakes. Yeah, um, I mean Well, David, thanks so much for being on the show yet again and being sort of uh sort of a uh a international part of our community. We so appreciate it.
2: Well, guys, yeah, I just want to say to everyone in your community, thank you so much for hearing me. And, you know, I'm no perfect person. I'm just someone also trying to work it out with Jesus. So thanks for your grace where it might have been hard to listen to what I have to say or, you know, thanks for your grace towards me too. And for having me as part of the community and I hope we can keep it up. And, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think covid and everything that how everything's changed i really want to actually make it there but we'll yeah. see we'll see yeah how the world will pan out
1: yeah <laughs> um, yeah you might end up make, yeah you might make it here and then
2: never be stuck allowed here to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's the danger it's yeah. like yeah it's <laughs> Um, I can't even make it back to my own country. I have to pay for my own hotel for two weeks if I want to do that. I mean, crazy. That is crazy.
0: It's wild. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, If you have any questions, comments, quips, quotes, or concerns, you can email them to staycurious at hillcityrva.com. Make sure to um, like and subscribe. (laughs) This is like the YouTube. I feel like a a 12-year-old YouTuber when I say that. (laughs) Um, Make sure to subscribe and share the episode and um, rate us if you get a chance because that helps other folks get in on the conversation. And until next time, remember to stay curious.